Welcome, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. This is Brother Jimmy Fortunato, and you're listening to a sermon from the Pilgrim Baptist Church in Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us on the web at pilgrimbaptist.church. All right, let's look at evangelism, a part of evangelism this morning, and we'll see... uh, the church's role in that. We're going to be looking at the ch- different aspects of the church, so to speak, over the next couple of Sunday schools. And let's let's get the definition of evangelize first. It means to preach the gospel. means to instruct people in the gospel. It's designed to, con- to convert to the belief of the gospel. And we are to evangelize heathen people, heathen groups, heathen nations all over the world. And it's where we get the word evangelist, which appears three times in our Bible. But the heart of evangelism is souls. Talking to someone just this past week. I don't know how the conversation came up, but but, um, he believed that there was a there was a spirit part of man, and then there was the the the, the beast part of man. In, in his words, so he began, he began to explain to me how he sees it, how he sees humanity. And I said, I agree, that's good. I said, from from the biblical worldview, though, there's one part that's missing. As I would say, the spirit, yes, when you die, that returns to God. The beast part. The Bible calls that the flesh. That's when we die. That's just going to go into earth and rot away. And There's a part we miss, which is the soul. That is going to live forever somewhere. Heaven or hell. So the heart of evangelism, it's not the flesh of man. It's not the spirit of man. It's the soul. It's the soul of man is what we are concerned with. So when we see people, by the way, soul or souls, shows up just under 500 times, 498 times in our Bible. So we have to keep that in mind. The church's um, priority should be for the souls of men and women. We can't forget that. We can't forget it. When we're training our children, it's great to come up with ways to get them to obey. And it's great to come up with different little training exercises. and You know, the, the young parents all excited because they read a book and they got a blanket and they put their kid on the blanket and they're going to do some blanket training and they're going to stay on the blanket. And someone else has a little room and they're going to get them to stay in this little section and get them to play and all that's great. Everybody has a little different take on they want to get their children to obey through physical means. We can raise good, obedient children. There's a lot of good, obedient adults that function in society, socially, but in all of that, we can't forget that they have a soul. That's the most important thing. That's the heart of evangelism. And because souls is the heart of evangelism, we don't want to lose that in the church. We don't want to lose that even in our family with raising our children. We can't forget the heart of it. The heart of it is their soul. That's what we're truly, truly concerned with. 
Get Acts 21, and we'll look at the three times evangelist, the word evangelist shows up. Acts chapter 21, verse number 8. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of seven, and abode with him. So we see Philip the Evangelist in Acts 21, verse 8. Let's get 2 Timothy 4 and Ephesians 4. 2 Timothy 4 and Ephesians 4. We'll do 2 Timothy chapter 4 first, and we'll be in verse number 5. And the Bible says, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, and here it is, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Do the work of an evangelist, we see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and then get Ephesians 4. Verse number 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Everyone has different gifts. We're given by the Lord. And here we have evangelists. We see that showing up. An evangelist is a messenger of the good news, and some really are just gifted in that. Should we all do the work in a, of an evangelist? Yes, we should. Um, do we see Philip the evangelist? Yes, we do. We see the gift of an evangelist. Some just have the gift. Uh, you know, I think of, uh, you know, Ray Comfort comes to my mind. It's just a guy that just kind of seems to have the gift. He just can let people have it and can keep the conversation going and they don't feel like they've been let have. <laughs> I mean, he really just has a good gift about him. And he's able to relate to people well without shying away from sin, without shying away from hell, without leaving out parts of the gospel to make it where it's easier to get along. He's not afraid to not get along. He's not afraid to have disagreement or conflict or to be able to contend. But it just, man, just one of those guys, you just get around and it's just, he's just got that gift. So there, there seems to be in the Bible that aspect of it as well. Now that shouldn't exclude us from doing the work of an evangelist. Oh, well, I'll just never be as good as Ray. You probably won't. But don't use that as an excuse to not talk to somebody about the Lord. An evangelist carries the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to different people in different places. They win souls to Christ. They form an assembly. A lot of times they'll bring in a pastor and move on. However, he could stay. The idea of evangelism is to gather 
one aspect of evangelism is to gather together some people that have been evangelized too. They've been one to the Lord. Now they need a place to be um, taught the doctrines of God. And sometimes that evangelist will then move on to another town. And sometimes he can stay. There isn't a right or wrong in that. But typically we hear of an evangelist you know, you know, the guy's an evangelist, which means he has an RV and he goes around from town to town and he stays for a couple of days and then he goes on to the next church. Okay, it can kind of work, but it's really hard to revitalize anything in two days. It really is. Typically, evangelists stay in an area a bit longer, gather people together, make sure that work is going to go on. But there is that aspect of it as well. All right. What does Ezekiel 18 say? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. All sinned, now all have a soul. Which brings us to soul winning. Soul winning. Let's get Proverbs 11. Verse 30. Proverbs 11, verse 30. The righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. Because the righteous is a tree of life wouldn't be correct. It's the fruit that is produced that is righteous. Look what it says. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. That's what a tree of life is. The fruit that is produced. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. He that winneth souls is wise. We're looking for fruit to be produced. And that fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. That fruit gives life. Winning a soul to Christ gives life. Then the Bible says, he that winneth souls is wise. When you think of winning or winneth or win, what do you think of? Competition. Winning, losing. Contending, winning, losing. There's going to be, there, there's that battle aspect to it. It's spiritual warfare that we're in. Let's turn over to 2 Chronicles 32. Let's stay in Proverbs and get chapter 18. Let's do those two and then we'll go over to the New Testament. But 2 Chronicles 32 there are some different contexts in the Bible when it comes to winning. Second Chronicles chapter number 32. Let's look at this context. Second Chronicles 32 verse number one. After these things and the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them 
for himself. We see this winning in the context of war. There's going to be a battle going on, and it's used now, we see, in 2 Chronicles in the context of war. Proverbs 18, Proverbs 18, verse 19 A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And their contentions are like the bars of a castle. Back in 2 Chronicles, Sennacherib trying to win this city for himself, it's easier for him to win in that type of environment than this lesson we're getting from Proverbs. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. We see this in the context of a believer, a brother in Christ. Now think how hard it is to win over a city. God gives us this little picture of wisdom here in Proverbs and says, you know how hard that is? Now try to win an offended brother. It's harder. There's going to have to be some real thought that goes into winning over an offended brother. Now it shouldn't be like that, but we all know it, it is in some cases. Philippians 3 and 1 Peter 3. We'll do Philippians 3 first. This is one of my favorite verses. Philippians 3, verse number 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Context of a believer. Winning and losing, you see here. And he counts the loss a win. It's pretty powerful. There's the pull of the world for Christians. Paul just says, you guys are all losers. <laughs> I want to win Christ. It's a pretty powerful picture. You see win and loss right in that verse. We see it in the context of a believer. This person saved still to win Christ. Right? It's not winning salvation. He's already saved. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 1. We're going to see the context of a believing wife with an unbelieving husband. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. But I don't love them anymore. You don't have to love them. <laughs> Where in the Bible does it say that the wife has to love her husband? Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. That, here's why. Here's why. If any obey not the word, he's just a knucklehead. He doesn't do anything by the Bible. I know. He's not. That 
Okay. They also may without the word be one. The conversation of the wise. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. How does a wife win over an unbelieving husband? Be in subjection. If he's not going to obey the word, if it's an unbeliever, don't preach to him. Just zip it. Without the word, be won by the conversation of the wise. Let your conversation be chaste, coupled with fear. God gives a picture here. He tries to give a word picture and he tries to describe there's a battle going on. There's a spiritual battle. And he's trying to help wives out that have unbelieving husbands, to try to give them some hope, to try to give them the, the, this little plan here, this little strategy where she can better get to his heart. But he doesn't shy away from saying, he's, you want to win him? Maybe don't preach to him every time he comes home. Don't, live, don't leave little Bible notes all over Try to take it another angle. All that stuff's true. All that stuff's right. All that stuff we, we all need to hear. But he's taking a little side angle and he's saying, yeah, but in this type of relationship and in this situation and in this context, maybe it's better that he just watches how you act around him, treat him, you're in subjection to him, But he's got to be one. God's trying to help out a wife who has an unbelieving husband. Is it an easy situation to be in? No. Is winning over a city an easy situation to be in? No. Is winning Christ as a believer when the world's pulling at you an easy situation? No. You have an offended brother or sister and you're trying to win them over, is it easy? No. So why would we think winning souls would be easy. It's not. But the heart of evangelism is souls. Can't forget that. All right, winning. We have a, okay, we have a spiritual war. Winning is to gain the victory. When we evangelize, our desire should be to see souls saved. Where is our victory found in Christ, who is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is He employed to do His work? We all put our hands up. We're all employed. And we wouldn't show up late on the job. We wouldn't do a slack, do our work with a slack hand. And if God has employed us as believers, we need to do the work of the ministry. We all are called to preach the gospel. Men, women, even children can start evangelizing. Some people take this the other way. They're called and 
So now they don't want to work anymore because they're going to be doing the work of the ministry. Which is great if you have a church of 200 or 300 or 400 and 500 and it kind of makes sense that that pastor and assistant pastor and that staff, well, they're going to be busy. But if you're called to do the work of the ministry and you got 10 people, it's not really that hard. It's hard, but you don't need four deacons when you only got 10 people. There's nothing to deek. There's nothing... There's nothing <laughs> what do you do? You know, you're a young pastor, meaning the church is young. What do you do when you have a problem? Well, you talk to the people. You call your pastor. You call other um, men that have been in the ministry a lot longer and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking of doing on my own track. But it isn't give up your job because you were called to do the work of the ministry. People want to just show up late for work and their excuse is, well, I was handing gospel tracts out. Okay, well, great, you're fired. Let's get somebody else in here. You have other responsibilities. So doing the work of the ministry doesn't mean you neglect the other work that God wants you to do. And Christians in this day and age are ever so famous for obeying one part of the Bible and at the same time disobeying another. Isn't it worse? Aren't you worse than an unbeliever if you don't provide for your family? Okay, well, get off the street corner holding signs and get off passing tracks out and pay your bills. Work some overtime. So there's both aspects that have to be balanced out. And people like to blame God. Well, I was just called. Well, your calling doesn't line up with everything we're reading here. So you isolated one thing and I see your point, but we can't forget about the whole and just look at one part. All right, let's go to Romans chapter 11. We'll do a bit more here. The Bible mentions the word save some, which is sobering. And one of the saddest verses in the Bible, King Agrippa says, thou hast almost persuaded me. And almost persuaded means you're still lost. And the Bible speaks about that. We're going to save some. Save some. Romans 11, verse number uh, let's start at verse number 13. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. His desire, Paul's desire and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is to save some. Saving some denotes that all won't be saved. 
And let's get 1 Corinthians 9. Because this just shows that this whole universal salvation business is, is a hoax. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's start at verse number 20. Uh, let's start at verse number 19. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself a servant unto all, that I may gain the more. Now, how do you get this picture of Paul saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that I'm going to serve all that he might gain more? We don't think of like that as Americans. We don't think like that as, as, as a whole as American Christians. We tend to Americanize our Christianity in a lot of cases. Paul's going to serve, and as he's serving, he's gaining more. Well, there's the solution for marriage problems. There's the solution for child raising. There's the solution for work. There's the solution for no church problems. The wife just says, you know what? She's just thinking to herself, the guy's an idiot. And I'm just going to serve him. Not with the hard attitude that, well, I'm trapped and that's just my lot in life and I got nothing better going on. And if I leave him now, I'll just serve the old man. No, but with the hard attitude that says, I'm actually going to gain more. That changes things. How does Paul live like this? That would be God. <laughs> that would be the power of the Holy Spirit. That would be Christ Jesus our Lord. Where the husband says no matter what she does, no matter what she says, no matter... It doesn't matter. All I'm going to do is just continue to serve and his hard attitude isn't I'm just staying busy so I don't have to deal with her mouth. <laughs> His hard attitude is, I'm just going to serve because I know it's going to be gain for me. Now, how do we get there? I don't know. I just report what the Bible says and I try to do my best to surrender to the Holy Spirit every day just like you do. But if we can get a little truth from that today and try to apply it to our life, gaining and winning is serving. Because if you try to gain and expect others to serve you because you're gaining and doing and accomplishing and all of this, all you're going to do is be let down because you have an expectation of someone else and that person will always come under your expectation. Rarely do you meet somebody that exceeds your expectation? Oh, he's going to be wonderful. I'm going to marry the man of my dreams. He's so... Until you get married. And then you realize, what was I thinking? You had an expectation of what your superhero husband was going to be. Let him down. And then the husband, the same thing. It's going to be great. Until you get married and there's a problem. 
we're going to have kids and it's going to be great because I read a book and all this and, and I bought a blanket and we're going to do blanket training. Yay! Until you have kids. And then you realize that they don't live up to your expectations. And then you get involved with workers and they don't live up to your expectations. And then you get involved in a church and the church members don't live up to your expectations and you don't live up to the church members' expectations. So everybody's just set for ruin. You might as well just live in a mountain as a hermit if you want to do it that way because you're never, ever, ever going to function. Or you can do what Paul does and just be a servant Just shut up and be a servant (laughs) with the hard attitude that says, I'm just going to gain more because I've got my sights fixed this way and these are God's people and God blessed me with this wife and God blessed me with these kids. Easy to preach, hard to live, I know. But how do you win? By serving. How do you win a soul? How do you evangelize the lost? You've got to serve God in doing that. Because if you're trying to just win them by beating them without the power of the Holy Spirit, without having yourself surrendered to the work of the Holy Spirit, you're going to get bitter. Lost people have worn me out. I'm sure they've worn you out. So you use that as an excuse. uh, Well, I don't want to do this again. Because you got an expectation. To serve. Alright, first John. Last last verse on this one. Last verse, and I'll be done. First John chapter five. The whole thing's good. Verse number one, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone that loveth him begat loveth him also that is begotten of God. Look at verse 2. But this we know, that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. Well, which one? How many? How often? Another verse Christians love. Well, if you really love God and if you were really right with God, you would keep His commandments. Oh, okay, which ones? The ones that you, have, the ones that you keep that you don't have trouble not, not keeping? It's funny, you're able to pick out the ones I don't keep. But when I try to pick out the ones you don't keep, do you keep all of his commandments? All the time. None of us do. So we can all learn to love God more. Right? <laughs> right? Well, you did that sin and you I would do that because I love God and I keep his commandments. Well, I can probably point out a couple of commandments you don't keep if we hang out for a week. But nobody signs up for that because we want to we stand on our pedestal of righteousness. 
And I don't say that to say we just shy away from, ah, forget about even trying. I say that to say even though we should try and strive to live godly lives, none of us measure up. And we all need to love God more. We all do. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in a pew in the church house or a chair in the church house or you're behind the pulpit in the church house or you're evangelizing on the street. It doesn't matter. We all need to love God more. For this is the love of God. that We keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous, which is another aspect. You know, the guy that's an independent Baptist and his kids are, you know, his daughters are 30 years old and they still live at home and they, you know, they wear dresses or curtains that they grab off because they have to be totally straight. And, you know, it's and they're trapped at home. Oh, see, my, my daughters are, we're just waiting for the right guy. Well, the right guy's out there, but he ain't coming to your daughters because they can't do anything. And the whole time, it's a grievous task. So big deal. You quote unquote dress right. Big deal. You, you do these things but it causes you so much grief. So do we really love God? We keep his commandments. We already addressed. We don't keep every single one 100% of the time. Okay, well, let's say we do. When you're keeping every one of God's commandments 100% of the time, are you doing it without it being grievous? And he gets us again. Because every single one of us has had our heart just bow up about something. Every single one of us. Because it's grievous. It's grievous. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of of God. Simple verse down to verse 12. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Simple verse. 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. That ye may know that ye have eternal life. And ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Verse number 17, look what it says. All unrighteousness is sin. Verse number uh, 18. Uh, verse number 19, I'm sorry. And we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. So we got the first John to say this. What's the heart of evangelism? Souls. It's going to be a battle to win souls. It's a spiritual battle. We looked at different contexts of an offended brother, a believer, a husband and wife, a strong city or a city. It's a battle winning souls physically. 
Now let's end with this. We know that we are of God. The whole world lieth in wickedness. Now go out and fight. Go out and win someone to Christ. And we know, verse 20, that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know that He is true. We are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. That's what we've got. The true God. We've got eternal life. The whole world lies in wickedness. And then, by the way, little children, by the way, God kind of ends it with like a little PS here, I think. Uh, keep yourself some idols. Amen. We got a battle out there. Let's go after it. All right. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. Help us to have a heart for souls as a local church here and to be able to evangelize the lost. We pray we can do that this week. In Jesus Christ's name, we do pray. Amen. Thanks a bunch for listening. For more information about Pilgrim Baptist Church, be sure to visit us online at pilgrimbaptist.church where you can also send me a personal message or learn more about joining us for a church service. And remember, Christ is all.